come on. I'll show you. Fifteen seconds, I'll show you. Seven, seventeen seconds, reanimation at seventeen seconds, the eyes open. Doctor, Doctor Halsey, you once did me a favor by letting me into your medical school. Welcome to The Fear of God, episode 27. We are having a conversation about the intersection between Christianity and the horror genre. And having that conversation is myself, Reed Lackey. And myself, Nathan Rouse. (laughs) Um, Last week, we dove for quite a while into a number of things, primarily centered around 1931's Frankenstein. And as we have done with each of these, uh, well, with Dracula last month, and as we're going to be doing with any of these Universal Monster films, we're going to look at the film itself and then look at a more recent version of something exploring the same themes. So today, I chose a film to companion to Frankenstein uh, that listeners, if you if you watched it, I apologize. I don't know. Maybe you loved it. There's a lot of there's a lot of fans of this film. I'm one of them. I'm a fan of this film. But we chose to discuss 1985's Stuart Gordon directed Reanimator, a true classic in the horror genre. I'm not being uh, facetious or sarcastic when I say that. It is. It really is a horror classic, but a very particular kind of horror classic. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that. But before we get into that, Nathan, how are you doing? How is I'm, everything? I'm good. I'm good. I'm here. Um, I'm ready to get kind of ahead of the game, if you will. Um, (laughs) I see what you did there. I feel like there's another joke to be made there. Well, you could always go with the tagline on the movie poster, which says Herbert West has a good head on his shoulders and one on his desk. Wow. All right. There (laughs) there you go. There you go. (laughs) Um, before we go into before we go into uh, Reanimator specifically, I want to mention something that is also so. If, if if people watched this film, this is an absurdly gory film. It is ridiculously gory. Lots of blood. Lots of disembodiments. Lots of uh, disembowelments. I mean, just lots of lots of uh, body stuff to be had. Another bit of gory entertainment that I've recently been quite delighted by is the new Netflix original series called Santa Clarita Diet. Now, listeners, you may or may not know this, but I reside in the town of Santa Clarita, 
And are on a diet. And I am on a diet, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, that is not true. But um, but I reside in Santa Clarita. In fact, there was a scene in the first episode of this new Netflix original show that was filmed right next to our house. Um, it's pretty wild, uh, actually. But that show um, is very... So, did you... did you Very outrageous. Did you know the shooting was happening, or did you happen to watch the show, and then we're like, oh, that's right next to us? Yep. We happened to watch the show, and uh, the, the uh, there's a... A supermarket right next door to our apartment with a little strip mall of different stores and a very specific I've lineup. I've been yeah. there. It is a very recognizable parking lot. And one of the scenes in the episode takes place right in that parking lot. Um, which is, uh, it was, it was very fun. It, it was weird enough seeing the name of our town in the show, but then the show itself is even weirder. I don't want to spoil particulars about the show because listeners, it's available on Netflix and I think you should check it out. Just be mindful that it's very gory and, uh, and it is, uh, got a lot of foul language in it as well. But I think it's a very fun show. That it's must be really fun. fun. I mean, the only time I've seen my, town in headlines in the last six months or so was race riots so you know <laughs> yeah not, not not quite as enjoyable or entertaining no no definitely yeah. not um but hey, no, I'm, I, gonna, I'm gonna recommend something go ahead yeah so this is not uh a book or a movie or anything but it is very it is something that i think our audience would be and you this is what off air i would say hey reed you ought to check this out so we we on the show tend to skirt up to and or sometimes just jump in the pool of what it means to be a person of faith in our current society. Mm -hmm. um, there's a podcast, well, on being, you know, anyone who sort of oh, has some, yes, yes, some awareness of, of kind of the NPR circuit of shows would be aware of that one. But someone just tipped me off to this one from 2008, um, which while eight years ago is still incredibly applicable today. Though it would be interesting to hear these same guys talk about our current scenario. But she interviews Chuck Colson, Shane Claiborne, and Greg Boyd. Um, Ooh, those names those are all may names mean, yeah, yeah. Um, and <clears throat> this is an unedited, it's I, actually, I think they've re just released the unedited version because of the timeliness of the content. Um, but it's about an hour and a half, and it's the three of them engaging all sorts of issues as they relate specifically to life as a Christian in America. It's, it's incredibly powerful. It's, it's just a, mm. it's a good listen. It really will help you put some, put some language perhaps on some of the things you're thinking about, or at least hear some, some people in our world talk about the issues that matter to us. I, I highly recommend anybody listening to it. Awesome. Um, to check it out. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to do that. I like, uh, I enjoy to varying degrees all of those three people. They've all, yes. they've all got very interesting things to say. Um, and from very different. Spect yes. elements of the spectrum. Well, and that's faith, so. that's one of the that's one of the reasons for it. It's you've got Colson, who's kind of a, a you know the old guard, as it were. You've right. got Greg Greg Boyd, who's a more evangelical sort of pastor of a megachurch type of scenario, and then you've got Shane Claiborne, who is very much on more of the fringe left, if you will. Um, so right. it's them. It's it's just them all engaging. The idea being, we can all sort of be of one faith with with varying perspectives on pertinent issues anyway thank it's, it's, yeah it's thank well you for that recommendation time. i think that'll that, that yeah i'm gonna check that out probably as soon as we're done recording and speaking of recording here we are so nathan read i i received i received from you <laughs> as you were watching this film 
a number of texts that I can't say on this show. <laughs> because because this show uh by uh, by our standards is uh is is clean and is is sure. uh, as as much as it can be when you're discussing films in the horror genre, a family yes. appropriate show. So yes. um uh, so I'm not able to to share with listeners the delights of some of the texts that that I received <laughs> from you well, while okay. you were uh, while you were I know I know I know you're building to asking me my how I enjoyed the movie but yes, how do you yes. how do you, how do you experience receiving those texts which <laughs> for the audience are littered with f bombs by the way I, I have no shame um you drag me through the mud I'm going to pull you back down with me uh, yeah. uh, f bombs and at least one middle finger which was a delight <laughs> to receive <laughs> that's what yeah. uh, fif- that's what 15 going on you know two decades of friendship can get you everybody <laughs> if you if you stick with me long enough you're gonna get the middle finger in a text that's, one day that's so true um yeah it was fun because uh, based on your texts i knew exactly where you were in the movie it was great it was it was really great I, it's to the point to the point that the last text i sent you was basically a eulogy of our friendship wasn't it yeah, it was a eulogy of our friendship and of our show to the degree that I that I apologized to you the next day by text for having made you watch this movie. Um, and I do think, listeners, that this may be the first official. I know that you did not love They Live, but you at least appreciated and respected They Live. Maybe you do this one as well. But I said this may be the first episode of Fear of God, 27 episodes in, that Nathan actively dislikes the movie that we're discussing. Uh, that may or may not be true, but... But it's yeah, not too, I, I, it's not too far off. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Nathan, tell us about Reanimator. What's Reanimator like? What's what oh, was your experience like of watching Reanimator? You know, it's it, it'll 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 grab you by the cranium and just rip. Um, yeah, I, I had I, I knew nothing about this movie, but it's funny. Um, yes, it is. When we when we first well, no, it really isn't. Um, <laughs> when we first started this this journey of the fear of God together, you know. I, I, I sort of thought, okay, there's this sort of category of horror movie. And I think, and this, this is as someone not entrenched in it. There's this category of horror movie, which is like that eighties. It feels like eighties. As I, as I considered it, it feels like the eighties, maybe somewhat in the nineties too, but this schlocky, gross, that USA late night in 1992 kind of movie. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, I that kind of movie. So, you know, up till now, we've walked a pretty high-minded tightrope, right? You know, like The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2 and Cloverfield Lane and these movies that have really interesting things to say. And sinister. Though, and, ra- and yeah, though, in and, right. Yeah, they're yeah, wrapped, yeah. In, wrapped in blood as they are. Right, um, right, right. You know, I, I knew so, something about I, I had no idea. I had not heard of this movie. But you're like reanimator. I'm like, oh, I was about to cuss just now. Uh, oh no, you know, like <laughs> something about that title. Then I go look at the cover art and I'm like, oh man. Oh yeah. Here, oh, here yeah. we go. Like, so then I just <laughs> I sat down last night and curled up and, you know, I just, uh, I don't know. I, I had to make sure I told my wife, I was like, she was initially in the room and she usually avoids these things anyway. I said, I need you to leave. This is what I said to her. I said, I need you to leave the room. Because I have no idea what I'm about to watch, and I don't want to be accountable for your experience of this movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was wise. That was really yes. wise. Yes, yes. Oh um, my! Because so, yeah. even in the opening scene, like that, like the first scene, right? You right. see these guy's eyeballs pop out of his head, and his head like mostly explodes. Whatever happens there. Oh man! Um, I, I, now hear me. Like 
Um, I would put They Live and Reanimator in different categories. Although, one of my first notes about this movie is it feels very, here's this word again, Carpentarian. It has that feel to it. It's got kind of a vibe, a John Carpenter kind of vibe to it. Um, Interesting. And maybe that's just the 80s synthesizer music coming through. I don't know. but Sensibilities, right, right. You know, I did, I, I was a little bit enriched to see it was Lovecraft. Not that I know much about the Lovecraft material, but you see that name and you're like, okay, well, all right, I'm going to give this, I'm going to give this uh, some rope here. Um, He's an icon and, in the horror yeah, genre. Yeah, like, yeah. like one of the upper tier icons. Yeah. Um, I do know King is, you know, references Lovecraft a lot and re- the, his book revival specifically is kind of an homage to Lovecraftian horror. Um, yeah, absolutely. Here's the thing. I'll give reanimator some points for inventiveness. Sincerely. Like that's not me just trying to be, um, you know, trying to find some diplomatic middle ground here. Like, you know, like if you, if you can sort of get past some of its excesses and, and its excesses are excessive, but you know, it's, it's inventive because I actually thought, about a third of the way through the movie, once it becomes clear that West, right? Herbert, Herbert West. Um, yeah. Once it came, once it became clear that Herbert and Dan were going to team up, I was like, okay, well, where does the plot of this movie go then? Mm. Cause there's still like an hour left. <laughs> and then it starts to, it starts to reveal itself. Little like, did you know? <laughs> oh, this is where the plot of the movie goes <laughs> you know, to the, to the dirtiest, dankest lab. You know, science yeah. lab in the bottom barrel of hell. You know, that's where this oh movie goes. My. Oh my. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. So yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was an interesting ride. I don't really plan on watching it again anytime soon. Um, oh, sure. maybe, okay. maybe, maybe ever. Um, <laughs> you know, but who knows? Maybe, maybe one day you and I will be hanging out and we're like, let's pop Re- reanimator in. I'll be like, all right, let's do it for you, for you, for Riri. Although I will say, I did, I, one thing I did tweet you that was devoid of profanity was something we may consider for future with movies perhaps like this, uh, is live tweeting them because, oh, yeah. you know, like the, there could be some fun in, in just sort of watching someone else's experience of these movies. Sure, sure. I'd be all down for that. And yeah, it was wise not to begin that with Reanimator, particularly, uh, particularly with your, um, shall we say, colorful reactions. As to the film. With, with all of our like fifty followers, we'd have we'd have cut them in half. You know, <laughs> like wow, I thought these guys were Christians. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, it's funny because the first time that I saw Reanimator, uh, actually my nephew Landon, uh, who he and I, anytime we have the opportunity to get together, you know, we love the horror, we love horror movies, we love scary movies, and he actually was a really big fan of Reanimator and had, uh, I had never seen it at the time. So he, he had introduced me to that movie, and it was one where I knew, like, okay, this is a blind spot for me in my, in my horror lexicon. And it was funny because, I saw it and I was actually, the first time I saw it, I was a bit ambivalent towards it. I was a bit like, oh, nah, nah, it's all right. I just didn't quite know what to expect. And so I had seen it and I didn't dislike it. I certainly didn't actively dislike it the way that it seems that, that to a degree you do. But, uh, but it was one of those things where I was just kind of more uh, appreciative of what I thought it was kind of trying to do. When I rewatched it again and, and sort of tiered us towards, talking about it for this episode i appreciated it a lot more for what i think it's for what i think it's trying to do because there's a very specific subset of the horror genre that we you know it's been quite a few episodes before we've really talked about influences in the genre at large 
And there is a subset in the horror genre of specifically kind of subversive, absurd, extreme, uh, just, just almost silly levels of gore and silly levels of, uh, just absurd, horrendous things that like, if you were to describe what was happening in Reanimator and the person did not know how absurdly it's treated, you would think like, man, that's just, how can you even sit through something like that? That's just incredibly perverse and that's just incredibly uh, just disturbing and disgusting. And I'm not saying that Reanimator is not disturbing and disgusting on its own, but it's often, it's played almost for as many laughs as it is for as many scares. Like there's sure, not that much sure. actual scares in the film. It's specifically intended, like it's supposed to look repulsive and it's supposed to look ridiculous. Like it's supposed to, there's a lot of those, those images that you're supposed to, I mean, it's supposed to be kind of darkly humorous in what it's doing. And I think that by doing that, the film is actually pretty successful at subverting a lot of your expectations as an audience member, subverting what you think uh, is supposed to happen for these people and for these characters. Because if there's one thing that I think you've already attested to that you could say about Reanimator is that it is quite unexpected. I mean, it, it's it's loosely based on the Lovecraft story, which the full title of the Lovecraft story is Herbert West Reanimator. It's loosely based on that story, but really only loosely based on like the first half of that story. Um, huh. That that story uh, goes to a variety of different places, and the similarities between that story and the movie end about halfway through the movie. Like that whole last section in the in the morgue with with Doctor Hill right. and everything. Right. Uh, not not in the not in the movie at, or not in the book at all. Not at all in the story. Interesting. So it's it's fascinating to me that it used this this launch pad to to talk about and i do think that there's some interesting things thematically going into it that i'm sure we'll get into but i just want to kind of start with uh likes dislikes and i'll go ahead and lead the charge because i'm sure you won't have many um <laughs> but uh, i will say that like so one two small trivial bits that listeners may, or that yeah listeners may or may not pick up on near the beginning of the movie in dan kane's wall on his wall in his room uh there's a poster uh, and if you don't at all know this poster, and if you don't at all know this musical band, this won't mean anything to you, but uh, there's a poster for an album called Stop Making Sense, and the name of the band is Talking Heads, which uh, I think is yeah. amazing. I did, I did catch the Talking Heads poster, but it would, not, it would not have at that point made any sense to me, the connection there. That's true. That's true. The other thing, sort of music related- Okay, my, my opinion has completely changed about the movie. <laughs> there it I is. Love, I knew it I would just take it. one little trigger and then there you go. Right. Um, one thing that I, I actually wrote this down when we discussed Carrie and I neglected to mention it. So I'll mention it now and mention it about this film. So in the movie Carrie, several times throughout the film, there is a shrill sound uh, used as part of the musical score that is actually directly from Bernard Herrmann's score for Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. From the shower scene specifically, the ink, ink, like that's used several times in the film Carrie. Uh, the reason it was used in Carrie is because Bernard Herrmann was originally supposed to score Carrie, but he passed away before the film was completed. So instead, as kind of an homage to him, they included that segment of the psycho score in that. The reason I bring it up for Reanimator is because Reanimator heavily borrows, um, almost to the point where it has been accused of outright plagiarism. 
heavily borrows from the score to Psycho, the extended score to Psycho. It takes the score to Psycho, Bernard Herrmann's score, and uh, adds layers of electronic synthesizer things underneath it. But the musical melody and rhythm is very much Psycho's score. So basically, they were just like paging Mr. Herman. Mr. Herman, you have a call. <laughs> yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, you they have were. a call at the front desk. Yes. I love th- this is why we're friends, Reed, that I can make that reference and I don't even have to fill it out. You just start <laughs> laughing. Like that's magic. That's friends. That's, that's friendship, everybody. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, those are just a couple of, uh, quick trivial bits as it were, but, uh, well, I, can, I can come up with some trivial bits. Oh, you know, go ahead. Which go sounds ahead. like a cereal or a Chef Boy RD thing. <laughs> your trivial bits. Do you want milk with your trivial bits? Um. <laughs> wow. Trivial bits are for kids. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one, I, you know, I'll make this reference. I don't know if you'll get it or not, but like Rufus is classic Toonses. Toons is the cat. Um, this is Saturday Night Live. You need to, we, oh. we will put this, we will put this on the Facebook page when this episode airs. Right. Tunes is the cat who could drive. And, okay. Uh, I do not it, know this Saturday Night Live sketch. Oh gosh. It's, it's classic and beautiful. It's like Kevin Nealon era. Saturday oh, Night Live, awesome. Mike, Mike Myers era. And it's just, they've got this little theme song. It's Tunes is the cat and he drives cars. But the gag is every, every sketch. The, the human that's riding with Toons is like, oh, I was worried because you're a cat, but turns out you can drive. And then within seconds, Toons just drives him over a cliff. Like, that's just, <laughs> that's just the cat because he's a cat and cats can't drive. But, <laughs> but Rufus just, well, Rufus just reminded me of the world of Toons and it made me smile a little bit until friggin' Dan slammed him into the wall like a friggin'. <laughs> Like a freaking basketball. Good oh my God, that was horrific. How great! How great was it when he walks in and Herbert West is like wrestling with this cat? And it's so clearly, just been a dummy cat that's just affixed to his back. But but Jeffrey Combs, the actor, is put is so committed to it. Oh, like, he is. and they've got the sound going, and it's it's outrageous. It's so great, and I love yes. that line too. Like after like, and this is what I mean about the film's dark humor. Like he's sitting there, he's like, "Well, you would agree the cat's dead." now right and just like picks it up and plops it and then, <laughs> and then he and then when he reanimates him again he's like don't expect him to do the tango he's got a broken back but right, says right, it so, right, right. so directly and plays it so straight um the felt like i i really more more the second time around got into the dark humor of this film yeah. like it's 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 I can, meant I to can, be absurd you know hear me uh, you know i'm not a hater completely i i could see room for that possibility. I, I will say the the sort of the scene is is a bit off putting in a way that, you know, yeah, kind of yeah, dam- we should dam- talk yeah. Dampens dampens that a little bit. But um to the I mean and heck, I even fast forwarded through it and I still was like, oh no, I'm sad. Yeah. Um Yeah, yeah, no. I, we we will definitely in a much more serious tone address um this film's scene. I did work, I did but. like uh I did write down, you know, you reference his name, Doctor Hill. I wrote down, did he not think through the ramifications of a headless existence? Like, <laughs> like, like, no one, what? Like, you gotta think about this stuff. You gotta, you know, like, what, how are you gonna, how are you gonna live past the morgue? What are you gonna do? How are you gonna have gainful employment? Like, how are you, <laughs> what happens when you eat? 
It's just going to fall out the bottom of your head? You know? Well, yeah, that's the thing. No, evidently, this disembodied head can speak without lungs. Evidently, yeah. it can, you know, like. Well, it- but see, do you, here, here's where two guys with theater degrees get into a conversation about science. Do you need lungs to speak? I don't think so. I thought this, like, you need, you need like vocal cords. You need, you need lungs to breathe. You know, well, yeah, like, but it, but the air to push through the vocal cords has got to come from somewhere. You know, it's got to come from somewhere. You can't just like try saying you know. something and not breathe <laughs> <laughs> right now. Try saying anything without breathing. Well, the last fact week, that- last week we talked about staying curious and being open to mystery, and this is this is it. We don't know. I'm very curious if know. you can talk without breathing, Nathan. I'm just I'm very not, curious. I'm not going to attempt it. I'm simply <laughs> saying, like you know, there's. But you're proving my point. He did. He's a. He is a scientist, and he didn't think through the ramifications of a headless existence. What? Yeah. He's just gonna be. He's just gonna be carried around for a while. Like, like that's look. That's your evidently, life. Evidently, evidently, he can speak without lungs, and evidently, his dis his decapitated body can navigate deftly with the eyes sitting in a you know in exactly. a doctor's bag. You know, I mean, he's well, yes, around. That, now, I will say, like, I'll knock this movie points left and right, but that scene with the dummy head on top of the body that was hysterical oh man was, it's so funny it's so I, funny i love I that i couldn't help but laugh there <laughs> i mean there's a, yeah there's a there's a lot of really there's a lot of really funny moments in this movie i i do think uh one shot that i love it's not a funny shot but one shot that i just really adore is um actually the shot when he um is like a through the two-way mirror so dr hill is holding yes, his own is, head yes yeah and uh talking to dean housley if i'm saying his name correctly but but like and the the light is such that the the heads sort of overlap one another that's a great shot that's a fantastic shot it, i don't i don't even think it means much in terms of theme or anything like that but it's just a fantastic shot well it is impressive it is impressive the what am i trying to say the violence is so sudden in places and mm. so over the top, but it still feels a little real, you know, which make, which yeah. in, makes it the grotesque, right? I Absolutely. mean, when, yeah. Yeah. when, when naked bodybuilder reanimates and is just terrorizing the morgue and then all of a sudden Halsey comes in and he's just slapping him around like a rag doll. You're like, holy cow, this is, I don't, what is, what is happening? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, and I think that's part of it. This, this whole, like, uh, the, the treatment of bodies, I think is, is very, key to understanding the the plot of the movie. Now, I will say, for me, personally, there weren't really any scary moments. But there was one moment that I love so much from a horror perspective, from a jump moment perspective, uh, just just everything about it is it is unquestionably and undeniably my favorite moment in the movie. It is after Herbert West has come in, he and Kane are all there and they're about to have a confrontation with Dr. Hill, who at this point is decapitated and is holding his own head in his hands. And Herbert West says, you know, I have big ideas about, you know, how to use this serum. And then when Hill responds to him, you know, in that very, I'm not going to mimic it, but, you know, that very sort of ghastly voice, he says, so do I. And at the moment he says, so do I. Every body bag in the room leaps up and that's when like suddenly they're overwhelmed with all of these reanimated corpses. I love that moment so much. It's a great, it's a great kind of jump moment. Even if you don't jump very much, it's a great sort of startle moment. You don't expect that to happen. And just from a horror movie perspective, I just think that's a fantastic moment that he's like, Hey, I've got some ideas um, about what to do. Tell me because I never plan to watch it uh, unless you force (laughs) me to. How, what, what clearly. 
what's the name of the actor who plays Herbert West? Jeffrey Combs. Yeah. Right, right. So he's in the second one. So what's the, what's the plot of the second one? Second and the third one. Yeah. So the, so the second and the third one, it basically picks up where this, uh, takes off. Now it's been years since I've seen it, but it takes up where this, uh, where this leaves off and he actually reteams with, with Kane. Um, right, but I mean, this movie. This movie leaves you in a place wondering where you're if like, he survives. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, no, he he does. He he survives. Um, yeah, and they start going and uh, and basically robbing bodies uh, from actually the the Peruvian civil war. Um, okay. They start, yeah, right. <laughs> no, right. Um, but they actually start robbing bodies and uh, and reanimating them. And uh, he also revives the body of of Megan, uh, who uh, or actually, if if memory serves me correctly. Now, I did not rewatch this film in preparation for this, but if memory serves me sure. correctly, what he actually does is reanimates the heart of Megan and puts it in a different body. I think it's a different actress, but he he reanimates the heart of of Megan and puts it in in someone else, which is the the bride of term, as it were. But the uh, but yeah, basically they just continue to pursue that uh, that course of action of trying to reanimate dead corpses. Now Kane is much more on board uh, with what's happening, and I think Doctor Hill even returns as uh, the main antagonist for for that uh, for that movie again, p- played again by uh, the actor whose name is David Gale. But yeah, I mean, my memory of Bride of Reanimator and of Beyond Reanimator is not as clear or as fond as my memory for for the original Reanimator. It was directed by the producer. Both of those films were directed by the producer, Brian Usna, if I'm saying his name correctly, which I'm probably not. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I would have to actually rewatch them to have an accurate critical assessment, but my memory of Bride of Reanimator and of Beyond Reanimator is not kind. I don't remember liking them very much. And this keeping in mind that the first time I saw Reanimator, I was only meh about it. I'm much more fond of it after a second viewing of it. But yeah, I uh, I was only sort of meh about it to begin so, with. But this, so this you, holds a high place for a lot of people in the Sure. I mean, the, it's all Rotten realm. Tomatoes had like a 94%. Yeah. Yeah, it does. By, which just reinforces my desire to do a petition to Rotten Tomatoes to take it down, you know. Because it's, it's evidently so I know. Because biased. it didn't. Yeah. I mean, like. I mean, Batman Superman was the best movie of last year, and, you know, people, it, it tanked. I mean, what was up with Rotten Tomatoes? I know, like, I know Rotten Tomatoes. You don't, I'm gonna Rotten throw, Tomatoes doesn't know quality. I'm going to throw a Rotten Tomato at Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> um, but uh, I do want, real quickly, before we dive into, before we dive into theme, if any listeners out there, this is going to be a dramatic turn for the serious, so we'll, we'll probably keep it rather brief, but if listeners watched this film, and had never seen this film. I did warn you last episode that at times it was offensive. There's a scene in this movie of outright sexual assault. And it is uh, uncomfortable, even as a scene in itself, made all the more so uncomfortable by the fact that the uh, assailant <laughs> is... A disembodied head. <laughs> a disembodied head. Um, so it is now here's the thing. I want to be I want to be sensitive to this because there's lots of scenes in films that I would go to bat for. We talked about the scene in Bone Tomahawk. I would go to bat for that scene being as graphic as it is and being necessary to understanding that movie. I would go to bat for the crucifix scene in The Exorcist. I would go to bat for a number of very intense and potentially deeply offensive scenes in a number of films. I will confess that while I do think a couple of interesting things are going on in this scene in Reanimator, I myself cannot find much defense 
for this scene in Reanimator. I do Good. think because no, I we 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 diverge no. here a little bit. There's uh, I do think that it is scratching at a couple of interesting thematic elements, but I think that the way it plays out, it's interesting to note, and this is a rather tragic note. It's interesting to note that that actor, again, his name's David Gale. He and his wife divorced shortly after the release of this film, and it was largely speculated by his friends and some of the cast members that it was because of that scene. That uh, and you know who knows wow. how That's much awful. of that is is true, but yeah, I mean it's 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 pretty rough. There is a surprising, I'll even call it alarming. There is an alarming lack of commentary that I could find on the internet regarding that scene. There's not a lot of not a lot of people calling attention to it, asking questions about why it's in there. There's not a lot of defense from it by by Gordon's side or anything. There's there's an alarming lack of just acknowledgement of that scene and how potentially offensive that it is. And uh, one thing that I will say to uh, and and this bleeds into some of what I wanted to talk about thematically. I'll make just sort of this statement about that scene that. I do think that when you, this is probably going to be a very heavy statement to make and then just sort of run with it because this is not what I wanted to focus on thematically. But I will say that when you, when you view bodies, when you view people, when you view other people as nothing more than motor responses and tissue, when you view them as nothing more than animalistic, then it is very easy for violation to have no consequence to you. It's very easy for the concept of violating another person to be absent from you unless you see other people as other people. I do think that we could probably spend a lot of time that I actually don't want to spend necessarily exploring the fact that it is a disembodied head. You can talk a lot about, you know, uh, potential assailants and, and criminal assault, you basically only operating with a singular member of their body and that there's no compassion, that there's no concern and that, which is why it's such a heinous and horrific crime. And it's, it, it is fascinating to me that what, what he says uh, before he's about to do that thing is he tells her that he's always admired her. And I think that the film is probably trying to explore something about that hypocrisy and talking about how, you know, people may, when they're trying to justify behaviors or justify the objectification of women, that they uh, may be going into this sort of thing of like, well, no, it's a, it's a, it's an admiration. It's a compliment. It's a compliment to talk about you that way and to catcall you. Which, no, it's not. It's it. It couldn't be. It couldn't be less of of a a worthy or valuable thing to treat other human beings, especially women, but other human beings in general, as just objects or. Uh, or just as, uh, you know, something for your own pleasure or for your own usage. Like there could, there couldn't be something that's, that's more offensive or upsetting to me in general to, to, to well, treat other people that way. And, and I think if I can, if I can interject, like, you know, since you had warned me about the scene and, and, you know, I kind of saved myself the trouble. And once I realized it was, uh, you know, uh, happening, I just sort of fast forwarded through it and, um, but, but got kind of a gist and, but it's made me think about, you know, you just referenced bone tomahawk and, you know, hear me, we're talking about reanimator. So we're, we're, it's part of the context. It's part of the content. We're going there. There's stuff to mine in terms of our, our typical conversations, but <clears throat> bone tomahawk is a good counterpoint to this because 
even independent of Reanimator, like before we even went this direction, before I watched that movie, I thought about Bone Tomahawk's violence and that particular scene there and how uh, you could, you could make a case. And, and I think there's an argument to be made about the quote unquote necessity, but what matters is intent, right? And right, right. And in Bone Tomahawk, there's nothing about that movie of which the intention is to violate or deface. And the reason I can stand behind that statement is, is very specific to Bone Tomahawk, which is this scene is representative of other things that have happened off screen too, within the content of that movie. You know, you referenced in our episode about Bone Tomahawk that David Arquette gets consumed off screen. He, he gets, right, right. you know, uh, filleted and, and then devoured, but you never see it. Right, the point I'm right. simply trying to make is in Bone Tomahawk, that scene is meant to be a very illustrative point of, of, you know, these characters recognizing the potential for their own fate. Um, right. it's the, the, the intention of the movie is not to violate or desecrate. It is hard right. to not make that case in this movie, you know, like, right, right. You know, there, there's a sense in which you would, you would watch this and be like, Oh, wow. You guys were living it up in the eighties and all about titillation. And, and, you know, you end up with a scene as sort of grotesque and, and macabre as this one, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's worth, it's worth the skipping is a, I think we're yeah. both get a lot, very long winded way to say, yeah. you know, at, at the certain point, once you realize this is happening, feel total freedom to just skip that moment. Yeah. Because it's terribly perverse. It's, yeah. it's a, it's, I don't use that, that word very often, but that, that scene is deliberately very, very perverse. And I will say, um, though I don't know how entertaining I would be to, to this notion, if there are any listeners out there who have a different take on that scene, I would, happily listen to it. Um, I think it would be a, an uphill battle to convince me of the scene's importance or necessity. But uh, but I would definitely invite any sort of conversation about anything that we've discussed here, particularly in that, in that uh, scene. But I do want to say, and this will hopefully segue us out, that I think that scene aside, that, that Reanimator has a lot of things of value in it worth talking about. The inclusion of that scene is unfortunate because I think if that scene were not in it, it would be a lot easier to more wholeheartedly sort of embrace the film yeah. and what it's exploring and how it's exploring it. That scene does uh, inhibit that to a, to a great degree. But uh, I do think it's interesting, you know, we, this is the companion film to our discussion about Frankenstein last week. And it was fascinating to me that both of those films, to a degree, are trying to examine in very different ways, um, but trying to examine the conquering of death, the defeat of death, as it were, to where somebody, th there's not the illusions in Reanimator of someone playing God. But what's fascinating to me, uh, sort of as my first thematic interjection, what's fascinating to me is that in this movie, Herbert West, the character, our main character, uh, which it could be argued that in this film, Dan Kane is actually our main character, but Herbert West is the reanimator of the title, and it could be argued that he wants to conquer death. But what's interesting is that Dr. Hill, um, who eventually becomes that disembodied head, he wants to conquer the will. So I thought that was fascinating that West wants to simply revive the dead, but Hill wants to control the living and the dead. And both of those intentions hold 
a great deal of folly in in even their attempt to try to do such a thing. And both of those characters in this film, if this film was all we had, if we didn't have Bride of Reanimator where the characters come back, if we didn't have anything, at the end of this film, uh, it is left to believe that both Herbert West and Dr. Hill are done for, that they are broken by their own efforts to control both uh, the body and the will. And it was fascinating to me that... It was basically a futile endeavor on both of their part. Both of them are leaning upon their own capacity, their own knowledge, their own understanding, their own control to try to basically manipulate life and death. And I do think that in our own ways, there's an element to each and every one of us which probably feels like we can do that. I think that the very, I'll say this about the will, this is what stuck out to me about Dr. Hill's case is when you think about things like abusive situations, when you think about things like advertising, let's go, let's go less severe and less heavy handed. Think about advertising and, and think about ways that you can subtly manipulate and convince someone to, to do something that you want them to do. And in, in essence, kind of control them or co- coerce them in such a way to act as if you would or how you would want them to act. It's interesting to me how infrequently we talk about the sin of manipulation. It's mm. interesting to me how infrequently we talk about, I, I'm not going to, we, we certainly beat up the church quite a bit uh, last week. Well, maybe we didn't really beat up the church, but maybe just sort of came to the defense of, of the real church. But uh, I think that even from the pulpit, or from any lectern uh, within the church or without the church. Like, we don't talk very much about the, what I would deem, quote-unquote, the sin of manipulation. But that's something that I think is present in this film, in most specifically in the character of Dr. Hill. And his work is all revolving around controlling the living and the dead. And at first, he succeeds in doing that with Dean Housley and his reanimated body. But then Housley, um, in, a, in, I think, a pivotal moment, turns on him and begins to, uh, and he actually destroys uh, Dr. Hill in general, (laughs) squeezes his head like a ripe melon. But I I just, I I would invite any, any or all thoughts that you had on that, this notion of what I would call the, the sin of manipulation and the folly of committing that sin, believing we do so with impunity. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I think partly because what you're, what you're, what it feels like you're brushing up against there is a sometimes harder to outright see, Mm. you know, like if you are a manipulator, you just think, well, uh, this is just, this is just who I am and how I behave. If you're someone who is being manipulated, it's sometimes hard to discern that that's happening in the moment. So I'd say that's one thing. And the, the other thing is almost all of us do this to a certain degree. And so, you know, it's, it's the, it's the age old adage. Well, like, why do, why does the pastor keep beating up on homosexuality? Well, it's because he can never envision himself being that way. Like, it's easy to beat up on something that you just aren't. If, if you aren't, you know, like we get real sensitive when you start tapping on the bruise of things that we actually succumb to and fall prey to in our own life. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, sometimes it is hard to just not not sort of want to wash your hands of sin of gossip or sin of slander or sin of this or sin of that, you know. But 
we kind of keep coming back to it. I feel like I'm really wandering far afield of what you're interested in actually talking about, but I do think there's value in what you're saying in the sense that it's so easy to overlook these things in ourselves. Right. You know, you know the, the, the subtle, the subtle ways that self seeking grows in us. And, you know, your, your explicit example of manipulation being one of those, like how many different ways in a given day do we execute behaviors or interact with other people that are really just efforts to further our own designs down the road? Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Oh, yeah. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely worthy to talk about. And, you know, you, you have something like reanimator where this is sort of, um, a heightened version of that and someone like Dr. Hill. Um, but you know, we, we just have to be careful that we aren't falling prey to just using people around us as, as bodies, as just, yes, right. Right. You know, just, just cogs in our own machine of life, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, I think that's, I think that's a very astute observation that we'd pay, we'd do well to pay mind to because it's so easy. And I think you might resonate with this. Like, it's so easy to just kind of coast through your life being like, I'm good, you know, not as in like, I don't occasionally fall prey to a sin here or there or whatever, but you know, we, we like to think better of ourselves than perhaps we really are. Yes. Yes, we definitely do. And I think to what you were saying earlier about, uh, or just a second ago about us, like using bodies, it does stand out to me that Herbert West cares nothing about any of these people, cares nothing about them as people. He cares about the fact that he can, you know, he said to Halsey, I I actually really enjoy this line. He says to him, you know, he said, uh, you know, you did me a favor by inviting me into your school. Welcome back to life. Yeah. You know, I wrote that down. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a great line. It's a really, really great line. And uh, it's one of those things where he does, he, he, he cares so very little about the actual, it, it's not even life. It's an illusion of life. It is the, the title, which Lovecraft can be credited with, you know, it's not resurrection, it's reanimation. Resurrection is a calling forth back into life. But reanimation is simply that, that is, it is devoid of soul. It's mechanics. Absolutely. It's mechanics. It's, it's absolutely just the, the motion of an organism. It's, it's, right. it is tissue that has motion. That's all it is to it. And it is seen as life. One of the things that I took note of that is really tragic. And in a film this absurd and in a film this darkly humorous, it's fascinating to me the note that it ends on because the first time that we see the character of Dan Kane. First time we see him, he's trying to revive a patient uh, using CPR. He's trying to revive someone who has deceased, and he fails at that attempt. And then, in the end, we see him doing that again for someone he loves and for someone he cares about. And I took specific note of the fact that the film begins and ends with him trying to revive sure. uh, a, a patient in the same exact way, in the same exact room. Like he carries Megan back to the same room that we first meet him in and is and trying to revive her by CPR. But when he fails at that, what does he resort to? When he fails at that, instead of accepting the reality and accepting the gravity of what he's been playing with and what he's become involved in, instead of accepting that reality, what does he resort to? And it's a, it's a tragic, but I think a brilliant final moment. He grabs the syringe of reanimation fluid. 
And what happens when we cannot accept the, uh, this, oh, listeners, this is a grandiose statement and it's a broad statement, but it's one that I mean. What happens when we cannot accept the otherness of a person? What happens when we cannot accept the realities of life and death? What happens when we are in denial about our own limits of control? And we are, when we are in denial about the things that we can no longer harness for our own purposes and intentions, we resort to manipulation. We resort to, I am going to use the tactics that will get me the end result that I want. And in this film, that is merely an illusion of life. It is sure. not life. Yeah. That is not the actual goal that he would love to accomplish. That is merely an illusion. And that's what he resorts to when he cannot save these people. And I think it we would do ourselves a service to recognize in our own choices and in our own lives where the people around us have become just means to an end. Where sure. they've just become means to our own success or our own advancement. And when we stop seeing them as flesh and blood living human beings, living souls, C.S. Lewis, uh, and I'm not going to derail us into a theological conversation about whether or not this is fully correct in its expression, but he says, you know, we are not bodies that have a soul. We are souls that have a body. And it talking about the identity of a human frame. And I think that regardless of how people may feel about that statement or whether that statement's accurate or not, I do think that it's true that when you begin to see the other as, as we said, nothing more than a means to an end, then you're going to lose control very quickly. Things are going to get out of hand rapidly, and you will have almost no choice uh, but to either surrender to the reality of your situation and face the consequences of it and pay the penance for those consequences or resort to manipulation to foster an illusion of what you really want rather than the substance of what you really want. Sure, I hope that all makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny. You make, you're making me think of, um, <laughs> believe it or not, of like marriage, you know, and I think how like, and, and hear me, marriage as simply uh, a template for intimate relationship. Um, oh, yeah. You know, like, I feel like, I feel like one of the greatest lessons I've ever had to learn, and it was, it was a lesson learned the hard way as most, you know, true and good ones are, you know, is like, is like this person in your life is not, uh, let's use the language here is not an, an, an animatronic. It's not a, right. just a person to sort of cater to your wants and desires, which sounds like, I mean, like in a, in a sexual way, that's not at all what I mean. I just mean like in a life way, you know, right, like doing right. whatever you want, whenever you want kind of thing. Like, you know, this person is a conscious person with an essence and with as much as much and as high a level of desire and ambition and need for support and comfort and safety as you are. Right. And to, and to somehow forget that or somehow neglect that you, you start to run this severe risk of turning them into just as you've described that, that animation, that just, you know, tissue given motion. <laughs> right. You know, they, right. they become just, part of the system of how you operate your life as opposed to a conscious, thriving, interactive um, being that, that you're in deep relationship with and have to be conscientious of. Right. You know? Yes. Um, and I think uh, sort of coming off of that as a, as a way or a means to kind of wind us down, 
the scripture verse that I thought of in light of of this passage may seem initially an odd one, but I'll 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 cite it and then I'll express why I thought about it for this. It's First Corinthians chapter six verses nineteen through twenty. It says, "Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own; you were bought at a price." Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, that may seem initially sort of an odd scripture, like, wow, reanimator, really? (laughs) Talking about you are not your own, you're bought with a price. I think it is important, and this is why I honed in on this idea in this viewing of the film, honed in on this idea of manipulating an illusion versus navigating through a relationship. And I, I honed in on this fact of, what does it mean to to honor God with your bodies? And I think it means, at least on one level, a recognition that we are more than our bodies. Sure. I think it means a recognition that we are more than just tissues. I mean, this is a companion film to Frankenstein, and Frankenstein is is about someone trying to be God by simply the act of animating life. Patchworking together, we, we talked at length about it last week, patchworking together bodies, dead bodies, and animating them and claiming godship by having the capacity to do such a thing. And I think when we talk about honoring God with our bodies and recognizing when it says we are not our own, we were bought with a price, of course, that is, from a theological perspective, that is talking about Christ on the cross, that is talking about Paul is writing, referring to Christ's sort of payment of our penalties for sin. I'm not trying to dismiss all of those things, but in a very specific way, trying to articulate that we are more than we are flesh and blood and bone and sinew and nerves and tissue, but we are more than that. Every single human being on the planet is more than that. Everybody is. And that means, ladies and gentlemen, Yeah, you thought you were going to get out of this without a political conversation, but it's just brief. That means, ladies and gentlemen, that the other, whoever the other is for you, Mm -hmm. that means that if you're on one side and the other is someone from another country or the other is someone um, who's a little frightening because maybe they look like a terrorist or maybe they are a terrorist, they are the other to you. However, there are some people for whom the other may be your hard pressed evangelical neighbor down the street. There are some for whom the other may be our current president. There are some for who the other may be whatever it is that the, that you see in the other that you despise or that you just absolutely abhor. I would urge you, please, uh, as a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ, I would urge you to see them as more than just the surface. See them as more than just flesh and blood and bone and tissue. See them as what they are, which is whether we like it or not, each and every one of them are fearfully and wonderfully made. They are not their own, just as you are not your own. And if we are to honor God in our bodies, if we are to honor God in our lives, we must at some point come to grips with the fact that the other is as valuable to the Lord as we may be. And it is vital for us to grab hold of that. And when I say the other, I do sincerely mean whoever you are, there is an other that you need to be attentive to in this. 
And you may feel as if you've got a handle on what the Lord wants for his people or what the Lord wants for your neighbor. But the fact is, when we honor, if we want to honor God with our bodies, remember that in the Good Samaritan story, Jesus did not describe neighborliness in trends of genetics or of location. It was an act. It was how you treat this other person. That was what being neighborly meant in Christ's story of the Good Samaritan. And if we are to honor God in our bodies, in ourselves, in our lives, we have to acknowledge that in the other. Well, and I'm going to take your Good Samaritan reference one step further, my friend, and say, I think the Good Samaritan is an interesting story these days because it gets used as, oh, well, shouldn't, and I'm using very specific topical context, but shouldn't America be a Good Samaritan? Shouldn't we help other people who are downtrodden and stuck in the ditch? But what's fascinating about the Good Samaritan story is, is what, what, what were Samaritans? They were the looked down upon. They were the other. Mm. And so what that means and how Jesus tells this story is you are the person in the ditch. Mm-hmm. The other is the one helping you. And yeah. it's all about, it's this, it's the notion of mercy. Like your capacity to receive aid from the other mm-hmm. is indicative of your capacity to, to be one who will ultimately give aid. I don't know if yes. that makes any sense whatsoever, but I just, I'm just trying to say like your, your, your point is, is valid and, and profound that we aren't just bodies in motion mm-hmm. and we aren't just white bodies in motion. We aren't just male white bodies in motion. We are a, a kingdom, a transcendent kingdom, uh, a, a multinational, multiracial, transcendent kingdom. And we would do well to recognize that to ignore that is to create Frankensteins, is to animate just nothingness. Yes. Um, and that is definitely not what we are called to be a part of. Yeah. Amen to that. And I think if that's okay with you, I think that's a good, that's a good place to sort of stop on it. So, so everyone there, just stop manipulating other people. Yes. (laughs) Just stop it. Um, I, uh, I, I do know that this is a film that is potentially has a lot of, uh, thought-provoking opinions about it. We would love to hear each and every one of them. So if you have anything that you'd like to add to this conversation, you can do so in a variety of ways. You can uh, reach out to us. Probably the easiest way is on Twitter. And uh, Nathan, what is our Twitter handle again? At the fear of God. You can also like us on Facebook and post a, a message or a link there if you if you so desire. You could also uh, reach out to us by email, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. It's all one word, fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. You could um, go to morethanonelesson.com and leave a comment on the actual posting there if you so desire. You could also reach out to me personally uh, on Twitter at Reed Lackey. And Nathan, where can they find you on Twitter besides the fear of God? At the Nathan Rouse. And uh, we would love to hear from you in any and all degree. Please, 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 um, if you have a moment and have not already done so, or even if you have done so, just haven't in a while, um, leave us uh, a review on iTunes if you're enjoying these conversations, if you like some of the things we're scratching at, or even if you don't, just... Be kind. Be be kind. Be smart. Be loving. But um, <laughs> um, but uh, we would love uh, to hear from you in any and all capacity. And Nathan, I sincerely, first of all, I apologize for making you watch Reanimator. 
second of all, I thank you for watching it, and I thank you very much for having this conversation with me. Sounds good. Sounds good. Just next year, next episode, we're gonna do uh, the '80s feature film version of Care Bears. Uh, it's <laughs> Just to balance and offset it, right? Right. Uh, I, I totally understand, and I, I deserve that. Um, but uh, yes, thank you so much, listeners, and uh, we will check out social media to see where we're heading next week, and we will see you then. Bye bye.